Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their core very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest today is Carl Fiore. Carl is a managing director in the Anderson U.S. National Tax Office, where he focuses on gift, estate, individual, charitable, and fiduciary tax consulting and compliance matters. Carl has significant experience with tax and financial matters affecting entrepreneurs, executives, and other high net worth individuals. He's worked with numerous families and closely held businesses to develop and implement wealth maximization plans through the use of family entities, income tax planning, stock option planning, charitable giving strategies, and effective gift and estate tax planning. Thanks for joining us, Carl. Thanks for having me, Dave. So the subject of today's episode is the legendary Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. She was an American journalist who became First Lady of the United States as the wife of John F. Kennedy. During her lifetime, Jacqueline Kennedy was regarded as an international fashion icon. Her ensemble of a pink Chanel suit and matching pillbox hat that she wore on a fateful day in Dallas, Texas, when the president was unfortunately assassinated on November 22, 1963, has become a symbol of the death of the Camelot era in the White House. In 1968, she remarried to Greek shipping magnate Aristotle Onassis and was rechristened Jackie O by the press. Following Aristotle's death in 1975, Jackie O found herself in an estate fight with Christina Onassis, Aristotle's daughter and sole heir, because Greek law severely limited how much a non-Greek surviving spouse could inherit. After two years of legal wrangling, Kennedy eventually accepted a settlement of $26 million and waived all other claims to the Onassis estate. Jackie O succumbed to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1994, and even after her death, she ranks as one of the most popular and recognizable women in American history. In 1999, she was listed as one of Gallup's most admired men and women of the 20th century. She also left a broad legacy of philanthropy and activism, which is going to form the crux of our conversation today. You see, Jackie O was credited with popularizing the now widespread use of charitable lead trusts, or CLATs, to the point that the vehicle is also commonly referred to as a Jackie O trust, since she was one of the first high-profile people to attempt to use one. Now, Jackie O's Inter Vivo's Living Trust gave almost her entire estate outright to her two children, Caroline and John. It provided that to the extent the, the children disclaimed their inheritances, the disclaimed amounts would pour over to what's called the C&J Foundation, created by her will. Now that they called this a foundation, don't get confused, this clause in practice creates a clat. An interesting footnote here, though we still refer to this vehicle casually as a Jackie O Trust, the clat in her will actually never came to be. It was to be funded by any amount that her children disclaimed from their respective inheritances, but they ended up not disclaiming anything. 
so the trust was never funded. And to be clear, this wasn't a mistake, but it's actually savvy planning. She purposely left it up to her children, whether or not to create the clat. That all being said, I'm pretty, pretty vague about clats up to this point and what they can potentially do for clients. So Carl, do you mind getting us started by just laying out for our non-attorney listeners exactly what a clat is? Sure. Um, you know, let me start by saying that you know I think that uh, clats are one of the more underutilized techniques in uh, the wealth planning world, um, and one they're one of the few techniques that um, can create efficiencies both for income tax purposes and gift and estate tax purposes. Um, so you know they're they're really a tool that can have tremendous value for wealthy individuals. Um, but, you know, taking a step back just to kind of describe, you know, what is a CLAT and how does it work? A CLAT is a trust that is severed basically into two interests. There is a charitable interest. The, the charity gets an income interest in the trust and there is a remainder interest. The remainder interest is what goes to heirs, usually children, uh, either outright or more commonly in further trust. But the way that it works from a gift tax standpoint is that when you put money into this trust, because a portion of it is going to go to charity over the term of the trust in the form of an annual payment, usually an annuity, the value of the gift is reduced by what's known as the present value of that income interest. So in other words, actuarially, you figure out, okay, how much is that income interest worth over the lifetime of the trust? And the donor gets a charitable gift tax deduction for putting it in. So in other words, it doesn't count as a gift. The way that you would normally set up the annuity amount is taking into account both the term of the trust and a certain interest rate. That interest rate is known in uh, tax speak as the 75-20 rate, uh, which comes out every month. You figure out what is the most that charity can get such that the present value of that interest is 100% of what you put in, which is a really fancy way of saying that if you set it up this way, transfers to that trust have no ramifications for gift tax purposes. So in other words, you don't use any gift tax exemption for putting money into the trust. What this does economically is that however much the appreciation in that trust is higher than that 75-20 interest rate, all of that appreciation goes to heirs when the trust terminates. Right now, or, or uh, yeah, actually right now and in September, that 75-20 rate is 0.4%. So if the investment in the trust beats 0.4%, and even I can do that, that means that value is going to go to the next generation and com it'll go completely gift tax free. So that's how a, a, a CLAT works. And if you're, if you're familiar with GRATS, it's exactly the same concept. The only difference being that instead of the grantor getting the annuity payment back, it's a charity that gets the annuity payment. And the, and the charity can be any charity. It can be 
a public charity, it can be a donor advised fund, it can even be a private foundation if structured correctly. So there's a tremendous amount of flexibility as to who gets the the income interest, which charity gets the income interest. So you mentioned that 75-20 rate. Is that something that's calculated every month or is that locked in? Yeah. So you set the annuity payments based on the 75-20 rate in the month that the gift is made. Let's say, for example, I mean, this is not going to happen most likely, but let's say, for example, the 75-20 rate goes up to 5% next month. You've still locked in your 0.4%. Um, so that's not going to change. So that's that's your bogey, 0.4%. Um, and like I said, not too difficult to exceed that. From an income tax standpoint, and you know, here's where there are a, a, a few different flavors of the, the CLAT. From an income tax standpoint, there, there are two ways to set up the trust. It can be set up as a grantor trust, which means in short form that anything that happens in the trust from an income tax standpoint gets imputed directly onto the grantor's income tax return. It also means that the grantor gets an immediate charitable deduction for contributing the property into the trust. How much is that charitable deduction? Well, just like if you structure it correctly, the present value of the income interest is 100% for gift tax purposes. It's also 100% for income tax purposes. So if you put 50 million, and I'm just making up a number, into a CLAT, that would be the income tax deduction if you made it a grantor CLAT. And then as the trust goes on and on, all the income that's generated year to year gets, again, gets picked up directly on the grantor's income tax return. So if an individual was, you know, had a big income year um, and was looking for a big income tax deduction, a grantor CLAT would probably make sense. The other way to do this from an income tax perspective is for the CLAT to be a non-grantor CLAT. So in other words, it's a separate tax-paying trust that pays its own way from a tax perspective. What happens there is the trust itself gets an income tax deduction equal to the annuity payment that it makes each year to charity. The grantor, unlike with the grantor CLAT, does not get a charitable deduction for putting money into the trust. However, saying it that way is a little misleading because what actually happens economically is the asset that was on the grantor's balance sheet and generating tax for him or her to pay tax on gets lifted up, dropped onto the trust balance sheet where there will be an annual income tax deduction waiting. So most of the time what happens with non-grantor CLATs is that the trust never actually pays income tax because usually the annuity amount that gets paid out annually is greater than the income generated inside the trust. Really the only exception to that is if there was some unusual gain event in a, in a certain year. And you know, here's where you start to get a little bit more creative where you, you try to see if you can match up the, uh, the um, income generated in the trust with the annuity payments, all right? And so where would you wanna use a non-grantor trust, a non-grantor CLAT? That's probably more appropriate if the individual is making a lot of charitable contributions uh, on a yearly basis and may even 
have cap uh, charitable carryovers because their deductions have exceeded their AGI limitations. Um, and so, you know, again, with the with the CLAT, with the trust, there are no limitations on the deduction. So uh, as long as the annuity payment uh, is more than any income generated, the trust will never pay any income tax. Uh, one more point with respect to the annuity payment, and, and again, this is where you can get a little bit creative with CLATs. Um, the annuity payment doesn't have to be the same amount every year. You can uh, stagger it, and usually the way you would do that is you'd have the annuity payments be relatively small in the beginning years and gradually ratchet that up them up. Um, this, this is what's known in the, the, the tax speak as a shark fin clat. Um, and so you'd have the annuity payments be greater towards the back end of the trust term. The reason why you would want to do that is because, and this is speaks more to the gift and estate side part of it, the more asset that's sitting in the trust, the greater the appreciation, and the greater the appreciation, the more goes to the next generation. Um, and so that you know that's kind of charitable lead annuity trusts in uh, in a nutshell, so to speak. Yeah, and um, you know, these sorts of uh, you're talking about this kind of tax self sufficient in a way trusts, and these are kind of whenever you hear the term uh, zeroed out X, Y, or Z, that's pretty much what they're talking about. Is it's a trust where it's the the, the payment is equaling the uh, the tax on it, and it just kind of washes. C correct, like. It Zeroed out is another way of saying that you're transferring future appreciation, not principal. So you mentioned all this happens when you beat that 0.4% rate. Now, obviously, when the rate is this low, it's this kind of a ridiculous question. But when it's more towards 4% or something higher, what happens if you don't beat it? Yes. So if, if you don't beat it, that means charity is going to get 100% of, of what you put in. Um, and so, you know, the, what that really means is that there's very little downside because you haven't used any gift tax exemption to put the assets into the trust in the first place. So you haven't lost anything from a transfer tax standpoint. And, you know, most people who, uh, who do CLATs are charitably inclined anyway. And so if the asset you know, doesn't beat the, the rate or, or depreciates, the charity that they wanted to get the money in the first place is going to get the money. Um, so, you know, there's little downside in this. Yeah, so the worst case scenario is just, oh, I make this charitable donation instead of actually getting something out of it, really. I, I get the, the same I would get out of making a charitable donation. That's the, that's the fail state, I guess. Basically, yes. So let's break this down even like further, more simply, and just kind of put a language everyone can understand. If I were charity, having charitably inclined client, like what's really the difference if I were to, and these numbers again are completely made up, if I were to say, if I want to give $10 million to charity, and so what's the difference if I, if I made a $10 million gift to a 10-year clat as opposed to making $1 million gifts every year for 10 years? Yeah, so from an income tax standpoint, it may be nothing, frankly. It depends on, you know, does the grantor, what, what are the grantor's AGI limitations? From a gift and estate tax standpoint, the difference is the future growth 
would be going to heirs completely gift tax free. So, you know, it's it's almost like you're merging a grat and making contributions annually to, to charity w- with some additional benefits. So, you know, we mentioned this future growth. Uh, why is it so important for this sort of to be happening outside of the estate? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. That's a, a great question because that's a question um, that comes up, particularly with younger people. Um, when I sit down to talk about estate planning, you know, because you, you say to a, a, you know, a 35 year old or a 40 year old, you know, estate planning and they, you know, look at you like, do you know something I don't? I, you know, I feel pretty healthy here. I, I'm not planning on going anywhere for a while. Um, and when you look at their asset base, you know, wh- whatever number that is, and you grow that over 20, 30, 40 years, even at a very conservative growth rate, that number becomes very big. And then you apply a tax rate, an estate tax rate to that number. And when you show the number, when you show the math like that, um, you know, that tends to resonate. And so, you know, rather than having that growth, you know, again, over, you know, however, whatever the life expectancy of the person you're talking to, how, you know, however, however much appreciation there's going to be during that time, let's have some of that growing in a place where it's not going to get taxed when you pass away. Yeah. And I think this is a, the idea of getting things out of the estate is sort of, it's very obviously unique to estate planning. Um, and it's one of those things that throws a, a lot of, you know, financial advisors when, when they start swimming in estate planning waters, this idea, because, you know, their idea is to build a balance sheet, right? And to, you know, build these assets under management for the most part. And, you know, the estate planner is also concerned about that. But the idea of, oh, we'll try to get some of these things off the balance sheet um, for future, even further down the road benefits. And sometimes those can clash with kind of our natural instincts as professionals. Yeah, you know, I... I always think about it as, um, you know, from a holistic standpoint, uh, you know, I let's not look at it on a balance sheet per balance sheet standpoint. Let's look at the balance sheets of the family, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in all its you know places, be it trust, be it, you know, be it a business, be it a foundation. Let's see what that number is. You know, to, to me, you know, that's the important number and making sure that, you know, wherever the bigger numbers are that's where the family wants them to be. Um, and then, you know, what about privacy? Is this uh, sort of stuff, is it public or are these all sort of subject to the normal sort of trust, you know, privacy rules where it's not going to come out unless you want it to? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to disclose any of this. Uh, you know, you have to file gift tax returns and uh, depending on the type of trust income tax returns, but you know, the only the IRS sees that. It's not like a, a foundation where, you know, you could sit down at your computer right now uh, if you had a certain foundation in mind and Google it and you can ha- get access to the, the foundation trust or the foundation tax returns. It's a 990PF. Those are public. This is private. So, you know, we've been talking about terms of years in making these and we've been kind of making the numbers up so far. But what's the sort of the significance of, of the terms of years and how is that, you know, how important is that to select the correct term? Yeah. So, you know, normally, uh, and again, I, I will compare this to, to grats because again, for, for gift and estate tax purposes, you know, they're, they're similar in their operation. 
One of the other nice things about a CLAT is that there's no mortality risk. So if you die during the CLAT terms, the trust continues on um, as if, you know, ir irrespective of what happens to you. Um, you know, if, if there are some special rules on the income tax side, if the uh, CLAT is a grantor CLAT, because uh, what would happen there is if you die during the term, it converts into a non-grantor CLAT. And so there's a, a recapture of some of the charitable contribution. The, the reason for that is because if you got a 100% contribution going in when it was a grantor CLAT, and then at some point during the term, the trust starts getting charitable deductions for paying the annuity, you're double dipping on the charitable deduction. So there's spe uh, special rules to prevent that from happening. Um, but you know, other than that, um, dying during the grant term, you know, other than the fact you died, uh, you know, doesn't really impact the the trust. It's just that small drawback, huh? Yeah, exactly. If, if something like that's going to bother you, but the longer the term of the trust, the more appreciation is going to gather to be uh, be paid to the next generation. And so, you know, again, particularly when you have a 0.4 percent hurdle rate, um, that's a lot of appreciation that can be built up. You know, if I had to say um, what is a typical term, it's usually 10, 15 years, something like that. Um, you know, and a lot of it also depends on how much you want the charity to get and so and, and how much you're willing to put in the trust up front. And so, you know, and this is where, you know, some of the um, uh, more complex structuring and modeling comes in where, you, you know, you, you, if someone says to you, well, I want to give a million dollars to charity every year until, you know, for 10 years. So it gets to 10 million. And you say, well, OK, well, do you want 10 million uh, total or, you know, because take into account that money may be appreciating with the charity, too. So, you know, do we take that into account? So you, you take all these things into account and you kind of, you know, work backwards into a term. But like, like I said, you know, Typically, you see clats that have a term, you know, somewhere between 10, 15 years or so. So you mentioned way at the very beginning that, you know, we're starting to talk about clats that, in your opinion, it's a, it's a highly underused vehicle. I'm not going to ask you why that is because you're not a mind reader, obviously, but what, I guess, is being used instead? Or is this just sort of what you see is this, like, these benefits are just not being taken advantage of at all and there's no other vehicle being used? Yeah, you know, like I said, you know, a CLAT is one of the few techniques out there um, that creates gift and estate and income tax efficiency at the same time. You know, the, there are, you know, other techniques out there that will do one or the other. You know, like like I said, you know, you can almost think of a, a CLAT like a GRAT and also giving money to charity every year. But that can be inefficient. So, you know, and, it, you know, I, it, even though, yes, I am not a mind reader, if I can answer the question as to why I think they're a little bit underutilized, you know, I, I oh, think absolutely. That, I just didn't want to put you on the spot. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm all for being put on the spot. You know, I think that they are a little bit more complicated. Uh, you know, they're more appropriate with wealthier families. You know, there's more decisions to be made with how to structure it. Um, and when you, you know, you lay all those things together, you know, people might shy away from them a, a, a little bit. So, you know, I, that's probably 
um, why you don't see as many clats. Well, we're just about running a lot of time here, Carl. Thanks uh, so much for being a great guest and for really giving us the lowdown on clats. Okay, great. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And that's all the time we have, folks. So I guess I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.